Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. For the next two hours, I, along with my guests, will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Earlier today, it was reported that President Trump was to be questioned under oath in a New York investigation. The long-running civil investigation is probing whether the former president's company misled lenders and tax authorities in valuing assets. But then the story changed, ever so subtly. The president appears for the deposition in New York and says he'll plead the fifth. For insight into this, let's turn to my first guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. So former President Trump, he arrived at the office of the New York Attorney General this morning to give sworn testimony in a long-running civil probe of his business dealings, specifically his representations to lenders and tax agencies about the value of his assets. In a lengthy statement, he denied wrongdoing, accused the U.S. government of unfairly targeting him, and said he would refuse to answer questions citing his Fifth Amendment protection not to incriminate himself. Your thoughts, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a civil suit, so normally he wouldn't have the ability to plead the fifth. But since the DA, Latricia James, uh, state's attorney, is working with the Manhattan DA on criminal charges, he the judge has recognize that he can argue this is something that could have criminal implications, so he can't plead the fifth. So that's, first of all, the issue there. Uh, second of all, the issue that, that she is talking about here, James is talking about, is this question of whether, you know, in his business dealings, he inflated the assets, the value of his assets for insurance purposes and to get, lend, to get uh, loans and deflated them, minimized them for the purposes of tax. If Donald Trump did not do that, I promise you he's the only realistic <laughs> developer in New York and the only wealthy person in the city of New York who did not. So that's, you know, it, 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 is, the, it is the case that Donald Trump was a, a high class, uh, what I call the, uh, uh, the uh, high tower grifter. You know, real estate developer in New York for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great uh, journalist, Wayne Barrett, in the 70s, who did articles in a book about him, I think, uh, you know, about his his rise to prominence in New York and how it was done by various kind of real estate deals and by working the politics. He poured money into all the campaigns. His mentor was Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. his main uh, uh, lawyer for a while, who introduced him and, and stitched him into the world of New York, New York State and, and national politics. He was everybody's, uh, every Democratic governor and senator's donor. My favorite uh, slogan from the 2016 election was, I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton or her donor. So, you know, he got away with all this for decades because he was connected politically. He made, you know, all the greased, all the right palms. Now, of course, he's 
the uh, epitome of the new Hitler and uh, the threat to democracy. So everybody's going after him. So, you know, for sure, if, if there is a case against Donald Trump that's a legitimate criminal or a civil case, it's in New York City uh, via his real estate dealings and his various scams that, you know, are, tr- are par for the course. So, but, you know, clearly this is all part now of. Uh, it's going to be difficult to go through with this because you're going to find a lot of dirty laundry. And this is really all part of what is a politically motivated persecution, a prosecution uh, that may have some uh, legitimate elements to it, but there's going to be a lot of spiders crawling out from under those rocks. Just to tie the bow around Roy Cohn, he was real close to Joseph McCarthy, I believe, at one point. And he also worked, was it the Gambino crime family that he was the attorney for? That I don't know. I'm not sure about that, but he certainly was the McCarthy, the, 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 right. the, uh, the face of that, the legal face of that. He was, was he the prosecutor of the uh, uh, Rosenbergs? Yeah, uh, I think so. So, but yeah, he was a, you know, right-wing anti-communist. He was, you know, and a closeted gay who denied he was gay and ended up dying of AIDS. You know, it's, he's a nasty, one of the nastiest characters in American New York City, mid 20th century politics. And he was the guy who, you know, brought Donald Trump into uh, the political circles in Washington and New York. So that's, of course, you know, Donald Trump's history is replete with deals that any, I'm sure any decent prosecutor could find something to to get a charge against them if you want, and certainly civil cases. But we'll have to see. But, you know, this is all really now wrapped up in the whole, you know, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, he's the epitome of evil. And the, the, the Democrats are creating a situation. This thing yesterday with this raid, you know, again, mm-hmm. this is one of these things. Bringing in, bringing home classified materials, ex-presidents have done that forever and for decades. There have been fights about it time and time again. Nixon had brought home millions of pages of documents and they negotiated about it with Ford and the National Archives. You know, this is not something that requires, you know, the SWAT team and the the, the National Guard and, you know, hundreds of agents with assault rifles and crap going on. This is, you know, political theater. You know, the Democrats are doing something so stupid because on the one hand, they're afraid, they're trying to prevent him from running again. On the other hand, they're giving him campaign ads. I guarantee you that they made a campaign ad for him yesterday with the videos of you know, heavily armed agents coming to his home to find out what they had a box of classified documents that may or may not be classified and that may or may not he has the right as president to declassify and blah, 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 blah. Now, this is not something that required that. And we're in the midst of a political theater. That's very dangerous. Well, in fact, I, I asked yesterday, as we were talking about this yesterday, that the timing of this today is Wednesday. So Monday, I think Donald Trump said that he was uh, thinking about running and that he would make an announcement soon. And then Tuesday, you have FBI agents showing up at his uh, Mar-a-Lago home. And to your point about what this really does to the landscape, you have a number of Republicans that are now saying that this could boost his standing in a future race. You've got Ron DeSantis calling it an escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies. Even Mike Pence says it undermines public confidence in our justice system, demanding a full accounting of the matter. So to your point, if, in fact, the Democrats were thinking that this was checkmate or at least check, 
they may have moved their pieces too soon. Yeah, I mean, even uh, was it was it Chris, Chris or uh, Andrew Cuomo who said, you know, this is they, they better have a damn good reason for this because this is a bad, this is overreach and this is authoritarian nonsense if they don't. You know, they can't just have a slight suspicion that maybe there are some. They've been talking to the, to him for again months about classified documents and getting documents from him. And you know, even liberal scholars and politicians are worried about this. You know, the precedent that this sets that the Justice Department would go into a raid on a president's home uh, for you know on, on flimsy pretexts, even if they're real issues, they're not issues that require that. So that's. On me. And you know, it, it is just nuts because you have on the one hand, as I say, the Demo- Democrats seem to be scared of Trump running again. And they're doing everything to push it. This is something that's going to be uh, fodder for him, campaign fodder. And look, they spent 30 to $40 million on MAGA Republicans during the primaries. So they, they want... I think John Nichols tweeted out today how wonderful it was that one that 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 MAGA candidates and, and Trump Trumper candidates won Republican primary battles. They haven't learned. They're doing exactly what Hillary did in 2016. with let Piper these guys. So I don't know. I think that whether the Democrats, uh, you know, there was some faction of the Democrats that didn't want him to run that that, that uh, are trying to push to get him a, a a criminal charge that will prevent him from running which is not going to happen before the election, I don't think, or they're really just doing it in order to promote him again because they're more afraid of DeSantis than they are of him, which they should be. And there have been discussions that it could be a Trump-DeSantis ticket. Uh, yeah, I guess I hadn't heard that. You know, I, 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 I've heard a couple of conversations that, that depending on what Donald Trump does, that that could be one option. Yeah. It's, look, I think the Republicans... But who knows? I mean, I think Trump is not the best candidate for the Republicans at this point. You know, he made this ad. You see the ad he made yesterday, which was really a kind of a campaign ad about how the country is declining and he's going to make it great again. But it's all this stuff. It's it's, you know, militantly to war. It's we're going to stop the Russians. I would never happen on my watch, you know, and all of these things that he can't prevent. He didn't prevent, you know, all of the. MAGA people and the, the working class people who, who, you know, were refreshed by Trump getting on stage and saying, I know who these guys are because I'm there. I, I give them all the money and it, all that kind of, you know, tough talking, straight talking stuff. Now, on the other hand, he didn't drain any swamps and he's never going to drain the swamp. He's a swamp preacher who feeds off the swamp and brings in more swamp preachers. And that's what he did, both in terms of, uh, you know, d- domestic policy for working class and in terms of Foreign policy, you know, uh, we're still in stealing oil from Syria. You know, he murdered an Iranian uh, uh, general. He's took us out of the Iran nuclear. So he's Iran nuclear deal. So this is a guy. He was arguing in this campaign thing about how stupid it was or how terrible, what a terrible job Biden did to take the troops out of Afghanistan. Was going to leave there. So you know, this is a guy who cannot do what he presents himself as being, the swamp preacher who's going to stop stop forever wars and, you know, make life good again for the working class, not going to happen. And I think people kind of realize that he's he's bloviating more than they did in 2016. And someone like DeSantis, who has something he can argue about in terms of Florida, which hasn't done too badly, uh, is a stronger candidate to the Republicans. But, you know, who knows? The, the, the level of ideological... Confusion in the United States is so vast now and so deep that it's hard to know 
what's successful politically. Well, when you look at the the list of Trump-backed candidates that have been winning state elections, he's still showing to be, to say a formidable force is, is an incredible understatement. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, I can't pretend to to, to, you know, say, well, this is what looks like a more rational thing to me, but it doesn't work out that way. Uh, and, you know, we have the, the, the problem. There's a problem that, again, was not faced, and that was the January, what really was happening on January 6th, and what that was really a symptom of. And that's the fact that the electoral system is so screwed up, and that you cannot trust the results of this election, of these elections, for a thousand reasons. You know, whether Trump was right or wrong about him, or the Republicans were right or wrong about him in 2016, or the Democrats were right or wrong in 2004 when they said it was stolen, and it probably wasn't in 2000 when it was stolen. Whether, you know, we haven't fixed the election, so nobody has confidence in the, in the electoral system. So you're going to have, you now have, and it used to be that the both parties kind of didn't go too far with that. They would make, you know, slight gestures about complaining about the election, but they wouldn't really follow through on it. But Trump followed through on it. <laughs> he brought the pitchforks. And this is now something that's going to happen again and again. Nobody's done anything to fix the election except to deny that there's a problem, that there could be any problem, because Donald Trump said there is a problem. There are problems, huge problems. And nobody has or should have that much confidence in the American electoral system. It's a mess. And so you're going to have fights about that again and again and again because nobody wants to really do anything about it and make it trans. It's not hard to do. Make it transparent, make it confident, make it hard to cheat and easy to vote. <laughs> and uh, those things aren't hard to do, but they don't really want to do them. <laughs> well, it, I was right. It was Cone defended Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, as well as uh, Paul Castellano from the Gambino family. But with that, as always, Jim Cavanaugh, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Sputnik International reports Pentagon admits sending missiles to Ukraine capable of hitting Russian defense systems. According to a media report, it could have been an AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile, a harm. If true, it would be one of the longest-range missiles that the U.S. has supplied to Ukraine so far, despite Moscow's warnings about the consequences of arming Kiev. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So what's your take on this report, the United States sending these longer range missiles in? And is this really just a matter of uh, one of the adages I use, fattening frogs for snakes? Okay, that the, the exact meaning of, of that brilliant um, <laughs> <laughs> parallel escapes me. But I can say that we do have confirmation uh, from the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense uh, Policy, Colin Cowell, that the U.S. has indeed supplied the U.S.-backed 
Kiev Putsch regime uh, with the AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile or um, appropriately named the HARM. Uh-huh. Um, and this uh, missile, it is a long-range missile. Um, it can be fired up to 100 kilometers uh, away. So, uh, you know, uh, it's got a, a significant range. And it, it is a... Uh, radiation detecting missile it is used for destroying radar systems particularly for the the purposes for air defense right mm -hmm. it, it's its goal is to take out the radar for air defense systems so this is you know quite clearly a a sophisticated long-range uh, missile designed to take out Russian defenses, air defenses. Um, and uh, Russia, uh, some open source intelligence of a uh, air defense missile uh, site uh, in uh, Russian-controlled Ukrainian territory where uh, one of these uh, surface-to-air missiles was destroyed. Um, wreckage. Uh, seeming to indicate one of these has already been used. Now, we don't know how many the U.S. has supplied. What's more interesting is we don't know where they're fired from uh, because this is an air-to-surface missile. It is fired by aircraft. Hmm. And as far as we know, it is only compatible with a small range of NATO aircraft. We have no indication that it has ever successfully been re fired from a former Soviet system such as 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 is held in many NATO uh, former Warsaw Pact now NATO countries there's no no indication that any uh, military uh, you know uh, expert or, or or government has shown that it has been fired so either they have very quickly solved this problem of firing from an uh, and uh, firing this type of missile uh, from an ex-Soviet uh, type of aircraft, or there is some speculation there was some work that Northrop Grumman was doing to be able to fire this type of missile from land instead of from air, but supposedly that never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's some secret program that has not been shown so far, or far more ominously, perhaps it was fired from uh, NATO aircraft just across the border from Ukraine or in the Black Sea. Um, that seems somewhat unlikely. Uh, it seems likely it would have been detected if that were so, but anything is possible at this moment and no one has any firm answers. We have only just gotten the confirmation from the U.S. and this certainly will be seen by Russia as a major escalation. It is unlikely that the U.S. has supplied them in significant numbers uh, to be able to change the course of the conflict, but it seems far more that the U.S. is basically testing its weapon systems against Russian systems and using Ukraine as the battlefield in which to do that. Hence the adage, fattening frogs for snakes. Since we know that snakes eat frogs, uh, what the United States is doing is providing the Ukraine with these types of armaments, fattening the Ukraine only to lead to the inevitable they're going to wind up getting crushed. There are indeed some frogs that eat snakes, however. <laughs> 
Okay, Mark Slobota. Uh, Not too many, but there are a few. <laughs> uh, do you see this test ground being of significant power to turn the tide here, or no. is this prolonging the inevitable? No, I, this is, again, this is more prolonging the inevitable or the U.S. testing their own mm. systems for future use against Russia and using Ukraine as the battlefield for doing this. I do not believe at this point if the U.S. supplied Ukraine with nuclear weapons that that would change the course, the strategic course of this conflict. TASS reports Russia requests U.N. Security Council meeting over Ukraine's shelling of the power plant. Russia has requested a U.N. Security Council meeting on August 11th in connection with Ukraine's attacks on the uh, – pronounce that power plant for me, please. Zaporozhye. Thank you. Zap, like, like he said, power plant. And so talk about the significance of Russia making this request and where do you think this goes in the U.N.? Okay, so the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant is currently the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. It's a large plant. It provides power to a large section of uh, southern Ukraine uh, and beyond. Um, and it has been under the control of uh, Russian armed forces uh, nominally for some time, although all of the local Ukrainian staff and technicians are still working there, just like what happened uh, previously with Chernobyl before Russian forces withdrew in that area and are currently taking place at another, a couple of other smaller nuclear power plants. Um, at least three times now, uh, Westback Kiev regime forces have fired on this plant. Um, they have fired supposedly with um, uh, multiple launch rocket systems and drones, um, and that has included cluster munitions. And in particular, what seems to have been targeted is the spent fuel storage uh, containment mm. on the grounds, mm -hmm. which if it was hit, Okay, say by a powerful enough piece of artillery would would basically be like a quick man's dirty bomb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, um, with the potential to spread radiation uh, in in the area. Um, now, uh, Russia has accused Kiev of doing this. The Kiev regime, meanwhile, has basically accused Russia simultaneously of being in control of the plant and also shelling the plant themselves <laughs> with their own military, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but mm -hmm. I guess it makes about as much sense as the ghost of Kiev. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, um, Russia, you know, is trying to bring uh, to um, hold this UN Security Council meeting. They are holding not just the Kiev regime responsible, but the West, which backs them and seems to um, um, direct a lot of their uh, military um, responses uh, to the Russian intervention in the country. Um, and Russia also wants to bring in the International Atomic Energy Agency director uh, to speak to the severity of the potential crisis if the Kiev regime keeps deliberately trying to basically create a nuclear scorched earth policy, it seems. Again, TASS, Biden signs protocols on Finland and Sweden's accession to NATO. Help me understand the significance of this signing, because I also was reading that Erdogan still hasn't approved Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So is this just one step closer to that process and can 
Erdogan still throw a wrench into the works? Okay, well, so we know the U.S. was going to approve that, as most of the other NATO members, all of them, except for Turkey, and and Turkey is the one. Uh, supposedly, an agreement was reached between Finland and Sweden on one hand and Erdogan's Turkey on the other hand uh, during the NATO summit. But Erdogan says that Finland and Sweden have not met Mm -hmm. uh, what they agreed to. In particular uh, was the uh, return of um, uh, people of Kurdish origin that Finland and Sweden have granted um, political asylum to and in many cases made citizens, which Turkey, which Erdogan regime refers to as terrorists. And of course, I do not see it all possible that Finland and Sweden will return them. Uh, Erdogan is once again saying that that he will not approve um, the Finland and Sweden. Certainly the rest of NATO really, really wants this. So it seems like Erdogan is playing a game. Uh, he's trying to get more out of this deal. He knows he's not going to get these Kurds back. It's not about this. This is probably about more economic or military concessions from NATO that he hopes to wring out of them. I suspect he will get some of what he wants further. We'll be satisfied with that. We probably will never really know about it. And uh, in the end, I presume at some point that Erdogan will approve it only because the rest of NATO wants so bad. And they've had to make such deals with Erdogan before and, you know, with similar deals between the EU um, and um, labor migrants and, and, and so forth at the border, paying Erdogan off for being on their side, basically. So basically, the U.S. Senate approved this move and Biden is signing the paperwork on behalf of the fact that the U.S. Senate has approved this. Yes. Uh, so, okay. So that's what people need to, that's what he was signing. Yes. Was on behalf of the, validating the U.S. Senate vote. Yes. To allow this to go through. But now. But every other NATO member has to go through the same process. Exactly. But now, you know, there have been very close and very good meetings between Erdogan and Turkey as Turkey and Putin and Russia. So I would only think that Putin would say, come on now, Erdo, we don't really want this to be done. Does that put any stress on the conversations or relationship between Erdogan and Putin? I actually doubt that that was seriously discussed. I I think that that Russia knows that Finland and Sweden have long been de facto members, that that, um, uh, uh, Turkey is eventually going to approve this. Turkey is not going to deny this membership for anything that Russia would be give them that would be worth it to Russia to give to Turkey to to make them stand against the rest of NATO. It, it certainly is, uh, you know, inconvenient for NATO on multiple fronts, uh, including the propaganda and their efforts, their failing, much failed ef- efforts with blowback to enforce sanctions. But I, I seriously doubt that this was a big issue between Erdogan and and Putin, they're much more focused on their own bilateral trade, which is growing in leaps and grounds, and particularly in the energy sector. And it has to be reminded that the EU also gets a significant amount of gas um, from uh, Russia through the Turkstream Turkish pipeline as well. And Putin highlighted that 
fact, during their conversations, pointing out that Erdogan is unlike, say, Ukraine or unlike, say, Nord Stream 1 or the unever, you know, completely um, uh, politically unopened Nord Stream 2, that Erdogan is a reliable supplier of Russian energy to uh, the EU, and they should be grateful to that fact for him. We have just about 45 seconds of Russia lending Iran a helping hand in space. The Russian-launched Kayam satellite will covertly advance Iran's missile program and bolster its deterrence against U.S. and Israel. And I think it was reported that uh, Iran has said they've already received four communications from the satellite. Yeah, I mean, this has multiple civil and military uses, as as most satellites do. It is going to advance both fronts in Iran. It is going to lead to a, a, a future of Iranian-Russian uh, space development, and particularly as Russia and its cooperation with the U.S. on the International Space Station in the near future. It is looking for other partners in the Middle East in particular, um, uh, you know, as uh, people who can provide cash, who want satellites launched, and Russia can do that to help fund their own space programs. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Global Times has a piece, according to experts, U.S. new Africa strategy points at China, Russia threats when overwhelming evidence shows the West working against African interests. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a published book author, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Thank you for having me, brother. So speaking in South Africa on Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken called on 54 African nations to tackle global problems as, quote unquote, equal partners, telling them they do not need to take sides in great power rivalries. In contradiction, Washington issued a new Africa strategy document the same day, urging African countries to expose the risks of, quote unquote, negative activities in which China and Russia have engaged in the continent. And all of this, John, while New York Representative Gregory Meeks initiated the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, which basically provides the ability for the U.S. to sanction African countries that don't buy in to the American sanctions regime. John Jeter. (laughs) I wonder if uh, Representative Meeks is aware of the uh, practice during apartheid South Africa of necklacing, because I can guarantee you this, that in the Shabines, which are the taverns and bars all across uh, Soweto and the other townships in South Africa, they're having a conversation right now (laughs) about necklacing Gregory Meeks. I can guarantee you that. 
right? Uh, it's uh, this is ludicrous, uh, you know, as most everything that is attached to uh, this declining uh, uh, U.S. Uh, United States project right now, and the idea—it's insulting. It's, it's actually worse than that. It's insulting to the intelligence of the average African. And I don't mean just the diplomats and the and the elected officials and the cabinet ministers, but particularly in a country like South Africa, which has been, uh, you know, technically uh, freed from apartheid, which is neo-colonial rule for what uh, twenty. 27 years now mm-hmm. uh, and have seen absolutely no material gains for its black majority in those 27 uh, years. Uh, apartheid was a particular evil. It needed to go. But uh, I think during apartheid, 100 percent of all poor people in South Africa were uh, black uh, or, or black or colored which is black, basically, mm-hmm. mixed race. Um, and I think today the number is 99% of all poor people in South Africa are poor. And these are, these are uh, this is a direct result of the United States uh, economic policy, which is basically uh, neo-colonialism, right? It is, it is using finance and trade to essentially do to uh, the African um, continent what colonialism, extraction by force did, uh, you know, a a century ago. So this is insulting, and it's just another sign of the United States' inexorable decline. The new U.S. strategy document accuses China of seeing the region as, quote, an important area to challenge the rules-based international order, advance its own narrow commercial and geopolitical interests, undermine transparency and openness, and weaken U.S. relations with African people and governments, end quote. The first thing that jumped out at me, and not that I'm shocked or surprised, but I guess I'm just dumbfounded, that they they use the term rules-based international order <laughs> in, in documents like this as though it actually has a definition, as opposed to it being a accepted manner in which transactions are done. It, it is, it, it's baffling, except that, you know, this is not our first rodeo, doctor. And so we understand <laughs> that the United States is, th- these people, Anthony Blinken and these people, they talk to themselves and only to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, and, 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 they, and they don't understand in Africa, across Africa, and I'm not just, again, I'm not talking about just the diplomats and the cabinet ministers. I mean the average person. They understand the history of colonialism and neocolonialism in Africa, right? They're aware of, you know, they're, what they're saying, what they're asking, right, is where was this rules-based system when you demolished the most prosperous country on the African continent, Libya, right, just so Goldman Sachs could steal all of their stuff? Where was this rules-based order then? Where was the rules, rules-based order when, when the United States uh, 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 seized uh, the foreign reserves of Russia? which is wholly illegal by the United States admission, illegal, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to sanction them for this war. So this, this, the, the, it's not just the hypocrisy of it, but the arrogance that you would say these things, and most Africans, certainly within the cities, right, mm-hmm. um, in the urban areas, they, they are fully cognizant of 
uh, United States imperial overreach that extends to the present day. They understand the history of Afghanistan. They understand, uh, you know, Venezuela. They understand Bolivia. They understand these things. And so it's just so insulting that, that they would actually say this out loud and expect people to believe it or have that they have some sort of legitimacy. They don't. And let me just say this, because I think it's very important. It's easy to overstate the importance of China in saving Africa or 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 uh, uh, rescuing Africa from uh, is the neo-colonial rule, the West uh, dominance of Africa. And I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to talk about China as any kind of savior, right? Mm-hmm. But and, and you will find, you know, most Africans I know, right? They're they're not thrilled with China. They don't they, they don't even maybe like China, right? But mm. they certainly recognize that under that that doing trade with China is a very different animal than doing trade with the United States. China is not an imperial power. China is basically offering a fairer deal, if not a fair deal, they're offering a fairer deal mm-hmm. than France and the United States uh, ever offered Africa. And they, they, as Margaret Thatcher said of, of uh, Boris Yeltsin, I believe, we can do business with them, right? That's what Africans say about China. We can do business with them. If the if the African leadership is maybe just a little bit more imaginative, they, they should be able to find a way, I hope, to use... Uh, to leverage China's investments in Africa to their advantage, because what they need ultimately is not money and resource, not money necessarily, but development. That's what they've been deprived of for all these centuries when 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 uh, colonialism and neocolonialism has robbed them of their own development. So, for instance, just to give you one quick example, Africa, of course, grows all this coffee, but I believe this is still true. I know it was true uh, a decade ago when I wrote my book, Flat Broke in the Free Market. Uh, there's not a single coffee roaster on the African continent, or not on the subcontinent either, uh, at least not on the subcontinent is there a single coffee roaster. That's where the value is added, and that's where the money is made. So that's what Africa needs is development. And under China, I do believe there is a possibility that they might be able to expand development. There is no chance under, of that under United States uh, uh, neo-colonialism. And to your point, because that's exactly uh, where I was headed in going back to this statement, China is advancing its own narrow commercial and geopolitical interests. Well, here's the thing that folks really need to understand. To your point about coffee, it's the same whether it's diamonds, whether it's cocoa, whether it's any of these strategic minerals that are extracted from from African countries. Those resources are not processed in the country, which means the country isn't able to gain the financial benefit from the final product. So they only get pennies on the dollar. So, for example, I think it was it might have been Niger that's growing cocoa and was selling the cocoa to Switzerland. Niger says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start processing our own cocoa here in country. Switzerland says, we won't buy cocoa from you anymore. China says, that's okay, we'll buy it. Right. That's, that, and that's, exa- that's a great example. I, uh, just to, to, to confess 
uh, tell a little bit about myself. When I went to South Africa for the Washington Post in 1999, I, I am famously cheap and famously broke. And so when I got to South Africa, I decided I'm going to buy gold for a woman I was dating at the time, thinking it would be cheaper. Mm-hmm. I bought this tennis bracelet for her, uh, and she came to visit me in South Africa. And we were actually at the mall where I bought it. And she saw the price, and she had already understood the exchange rate by that time. She'd been there a few weeks. And she saw the price. She said, you paid more for this here than you would have in the United States. And she was right. I found out she was, I didn't. I thought she didn't know what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. She was right. The reason is because the gold is mined in South Africa. Correct. But it, all of it is shipped to Belgium, to Antwerp, where it's cut. They're raw diamonds when they're mined. Right. They're cut in Antwerp. That's ridiculous. And then they're shipped back to South Africa where that value-added tax is, is, is imposed. So you pay more for stuff like that. What we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see a free Africa when we hear about when we hear about uh, the new Congolese computer, the new Congolese laptops that are being sold in the United States and in and in Europe and mm-hmm. in Latin America, the new Congolese uh, cell phone uh, uh, or Rwandan cell phone, because all that material is found in Africa. So why can't they process? Why can't they construct and sell? Uh, uh, mass assemble and mass produce these items for export, right? That's when we'll see a free Africa, a developing Africa, a a, 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 a growing uh, economy throughout the African continent. And to your point about Libya and Gaddafi, that's why Gaddafi had to go, because that was his vision, yes. was an African Union that would rival the European Union, and to use his phraseology, it would be Africa for the Africans. Yes, yes. And and people need to understand, in in the West, Gaddafi is often portrayed as this eccentric madman, this loose cannon who had these, uh, 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 you know, mistresses from all over Europe and all that. Gaddafi was eccentric, right? Mm-hmm. But he was also he was also probably at the time of his death the world's leading Pan-Africanist, recognized as the leading Pan-Africanist in the world at the time of his death. Meaning that he had a vision for uniting Africa that was widely admired on the African continent, and, and his 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 murder by these proxy guerrillas of the United States was something that um, uh, is is is. Um, uh, very well known across Africa, and I mean, but the common people, because Gaddafi was really very popular. I mean, on a level with the Mandela, with the mm-hmm. Mugabe, mm-hmm. Uh, 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 you know, he was very popular. So people should understand that about Gaddafi and Libya. It is just amazing to me that Anthony Blinken could sit in a meeting with these African leaders and and lecture them in this hypocritical foolishness as though they're going to look at each other and go, oh, this is great. Thank you, Tony. Uh, glad you came. <laughs> and I'm sure he has some aide. There's some guy, some kid who went to Harvard, who's probably from Des Moines, Iowa, who after the meeting said, that went really well. <laughs> you know, and the, and the brothers, the, the African diplomats are just like, what in the world? <laughs> as we get out, the uh, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin says, 
We suggest that the U.S. heed and respect the will of African countries and people. If the U.S. truly wants to help Africa, then it should take concrete actions instead of using its Africa strategy as a tool to contain and attack other countries. And how many coups have there been? Or six coups in the last eight months? Something along those lines and backed by the U.S. John Jeter, got to get out. As always, man, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, brother. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Al Jazeera reports uh, Lula versus Bolsonaro tensions rise in Brazil as election nears, with rival Lula leading in Brazil's presidential polls ahead of the October 2nd elections. Observers fear Bolsonaro will not accept defeat. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. She's an independent filmmaker and a Venezuelan political scientist in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Micaela Ovalar Marquez, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Wilmer. Thank you for having me. So in a survey by Brazil's Datafola last month, the former union leader, Lula, had an 18-point lead over Bolsonaro with support from 47 percent of respondents compared to 29 percent for the incumbent. If Lula receives more than 50 percent of the vote in the first round, he would win the election outright without a need for a runoff. What's the sense that you're getting right now? Because I've been reading a number of pieces talking about a coup and that Bolsonaro will not go quietly into that long, dark night. Yes. Well, for Lula to win in the first term, it's very tough. I mean, it's almost impossible to be realistic because he needs to have, uh, um, yeah, he has to have uh, more more votes mm-hmm. than all of the rest of the candidate. So let's say he has uh, 40, 48 or 49, and then the rest can have 51 because otherwise he... He's not gonna. He, everybody's gonna go to a second term. I mean, not everybody. The the two first, like Bolsonaro right. and, and Lula, that that is where everybody's expecting. Because since the the elections come more more near, um, uh, actually Bolsonaro is like reducing that distance with with Lula. So, and he's putting a lot of money into you know uh, social programs. Now he's worry about social problems and he's like changing his agenda so at the same time he is trying to to make you know to create confusion he's feeling pretty comfortable when when it comes to confusion so uh, he's trying to say no he, he's not going to accept the, the the result and then he's saying he is going to do that and he's not questioning the the democratic system in brazil which which actually in fact he's doing so he's trying to create a lot of confusion to get to a point where he can take any any step including uh, going to a, a coup 
Yes. You mentioned other candidates, and, and for the most part, this race has been put in the context of two, Lula versus Bolsonaro. How many other candidates are running? There are uh, more than are about 10 other candidates, but, you know, they are having, like, very little uh, support. Mm-hmm. But, like, the third one that it, um, it used to be an ally of Lula, um, he was supposed to, to not not to run, but somehow he, he he decided to run, so he's going to take, like, a percentage, uh, the third percentage of both. And and then the rest, if you count the rest with the Bolsonaro, then that is what is putting in, re- in risk mm-hmm. the fact that Lula wins in the first term because he needs to have more votes than all of the other candidates. Got it. He has to get 50 yeah. percent plus over all of the other candidates. And, and as you're saying, yeah. well, he, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. He could have less than 50 percent. But always have to have more than the rest of the candidates. Okay. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a very interesting point that Bolsonaro has been changing his agenda. And when he ran the first time, he was incredibly racist. He was incredibly homophobic. He was incredibly right wing and conservative, sounding an awful lot like Donald Trump. Yeah. But now it's interesting. I, I don't think he came to uh, Joe Biden's summit of some of the Americas. He's been trying to moderate his positions. Are the people in Brazil buying into this new Bolsonaro or are they seeing him for, for what he is? Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are buying that. He's switching his agenda in a way that you cannot imagine. He's trying to show him like a non-homophobic person, which is obviously not true. That now he's taking, you know, in value the the values of the women uh, and putting his wife in the first uh, in the first place, like um, organizing activities, showing that the women are strong in the country. Things that he doesn't believe, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, there are a lot of people that are buying that, uh, besides that he's putting also a lot of money into social programs, uh, and he's going to keep doing that uh, till October the 2nd. So what kind of social programs is he investing in, and if he's investing in them now, if he were to win the election, would it be easy for him to withdraw support from those programs? Yes, he's in investing in basic needs that the population has, like food, especially food. And and the, um, the amount of, of, the, of the investment is very low. And inflation here is very high. Mm-hmm. But even though the people need that, you know, that help, um, so they're, they're, the people are seeing this as a positive thing. Um, so he, he might be able to keep it because it's very, very little the amount of, of investment for, for, uh, for a country as Brazil. You mentioned inflation in Brazil is very high. Inflation seems to be high just about all over the world. Yes. Are the causes of the inflation in Brazil similar to what's happening in Europe? and similar to what's happening in the United States? Well, you know, in South America, normally uh, it's different like in the United States or, or in Europe, that food, it's, it's, it costs you less money than 
it's because of percentage of, of your salary that is, you know, uh, low or little. Mm -hmm. In South American country, uh, the majority of your salary goes to buy food. Uh, and this is the case of, of Brazilian population. So uh, I would say that 90% of the of your incoming as a poor family goes to buy food mm. because food is very expensive here, expensive. It's expensive in comparison with other Latin American countries. And why is food so much more expensive in Brazil than in other Latin American countries? Uh, well, that's that's have to do with the agribusiness, because uh, you know you have like family uh, uh, producing the food in rural areas, mm -hmm. and then you have like big big companies that belongs to the agribusiness. Those are the ones that you hear that like Bolsonaro said that Brazil uh, can produce food for the whole world. Well, this is kind of true and not so true, but yeah, it's it's an important producer of food for, for, for the world, right? But the those that produce that amount of, of that quantity of food uh, are is the agribusiness and it goes all for abroad, doesn't stay in the country. You see? Mm -hmm. So then you have like the rural family that are producing for people in Brazil. So you're competing with uh, with the international prices. So that's why it's expensive here because the agro negocio, agro business, you call it agro negocio. So the agro business, it's like uh, it's it's imposing the international uh, prices of of commodities, food, and and these uh, basic basic um, needs. Yeah. That sounds an awful lot like what's happening in the United States with agribusiness controlling the prices of food in the United States. And to for the most part, agribusiness has edged out the small family farm, the smaller producer. Uh, agribusiness is now controlling or controlling the markets here. And it sounds like that's what's happening is what you're explaining in Brazil. Yes, it is. Uh, you might probably know the MST, which is a landless movement, rural worker movement. Mm -hmm. MST mm -hmm. is one of the largest movement in in Latin America that are struggling for for rural agro revolution, um, and they are actually uh, saving the, the 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 people of Brazil for for dying dying of of hungry, you know. Mm -hmm. Because they are the ones that produce, they are the ones that produce enough and healthy food for 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 the Brazilian families. So I think that, that that's an important uh, movement that is also making a lot of effort to Lula to get uh, elected in the first term or it's going to support in the second term if this happened. That is likely to, to be the case. In fact, to your point, Brazil's uh, MST, the Landless Rural Workers Movement, MST, they met with Colombia's new vice president, Francia Marquez, in July. Yes. Talk about how important it was for her to come to Brazil and to meet with uh, MST. Well, first of all, it's amazing that she she's already the vice president of Colombia. Uh, I think that that uh, is having all of us being happy and hopeful 
we see some changes in Colombia. But then she was invited to to um, Amazonic meeting here in, in Amazonia. Mm-hmm. And she was able to, to talk and to visit some other cities in Brazil. He was in Sao Paulo with, with Lula da Silva. And he was also with the uh, Landless Rural Worker Movement, the MST. MST. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's so important because she comes from from a rural uh, family, from a rural area, and she has the same values that the MS, MST MST mm-hmm. uh, has. So I think it's it's very important for for, for both of them, I'll say, uh, but especially for MST, uh, because you know Colombia also has an an important uh, an importance in rural development and rural and food. Uh, sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's going to be a, a good uh, match. Now, as I understand it, you're making a film in Brazil about the election. Is is that correct? Yeah, we um, we are doing a, a documentary on Lula and the electoral process um, with uh, Skipper Bailey as the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we wanted to, to have like the view of what is happening in Brazil right now. How is possible that Lula it's so close to be again president? Uh, also to to study the the Bolsonaro and Bolsonarism uh, phenomena um, in a, in a society that is very complex. Uh, it is usually to be called Brazil is usually usually called a continental uh, country. Mm-hmm. So it's very diverse, and it has a unique way to see the politics. Uh, so in in the region, for being, you know, the the biggest country in, in many in many aspects of uh, Latin America. So yeah, we're doing this, uh, and we are seeing some some risk on democracy, on the electoral process, uh, also in. In other, you know, not only in the executive, but in the legislative, like the parliamentary, mm-hmm. okay. uh, and the, the judicial power. All the powers are are in their shoes. Well, Bolsonaro is confronting the the three of the of the political uh, powers here. Micaela Ovalar Marquez, thank you so much for your time. You're joining us from Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, we're going to stay in close contact with you as we get closer to the October 2nd election. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Morning Star has an interesting piece entitled, Islamic Envoys Say China is Protecting Minorities in Xinjiang After Five-Day Visit. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's retired from a global advisory services firm where he advises clients on their China strategies and business operations. He was educated at MIT, Stevens Institute, and Santa Clara University, and he is the founder and 
and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Nice to be back. So uh, according to this morning star piece, envoys from 30 Islamic countries said they believe China is protecting the rights of the Uyghur population in the semi-autonomous Xinjiang region after a five-day visit. Diplomats from countries including Algeria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Yemen, and Pakistan visited Xinjiang, the capital, along with um, prefectors from August 1st through the 5th. They were invited by China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And this, of course, after the UN rights chief Michelle Bachelet went to Xinjiang and other regions in May. Your thoughts, George Koo? Well, I don't think the mainstream media will accept these uh, uh, five-day visits from Islamic country because they, they didn't come back with the answers that they were looking for. You know, it takes, it takes one person like Adrian Zenz, who has never been to Xinjiang, what he has to say and what the Australian, uh, what, what's it called, Policy Institute or whatever, whatever, what they have to say, that's what counts it, because it fits into the bias of the mainstream media. So, yeah, you pointed out that the UN High, uh, Human Rights Commissioner did go to China, didn't come back. And she went, by the way, at the urging of the mainstream media, and she didn't come back with the right answers. As a, as a consequence, she's, um, she's resigning. She's not re-opting for another term. In other words, the truth is already is always out there. There's overwhelming evidence that China treats all their ethnic minorities equally and fairly. If, any, if anything, they've been over backwards to try to help them out of poverty and try to get them a better standard of living. But it doesn't count when we when we're talking to the mainstream media, and that's the way it is. The Algerian ambassador to China said he got to know the real situation of the people in the northwest Chinese province, and contrary to claims made by Western governments, the rights of all ethnic groups are well protected. That's a that's a fairly a fairly direct statement. Yeah, it is. And and and, it, and and he's speaking the truth, but you know, but if if I'm the mainstream media, I'm always going to say, what does he know? He's only there for five days, and who did he talk to? You know, does he, did he speak to the Uyghurs, which I'm sure he did? And, and the fact that he's a, a, a Muslim should count for something. But I, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of. Um, um, given up on what the mainstream media will, will, what their take will be. A letter signed by 45 Muslim countries said in 2020, it's an imperative to respect the basic facts rather than making unfounded allegations against China and interfere out of political motivation and bias. Yeah. And again, this article mentions earlier this year that uh, Michelle Bachelet, the U.N. Human Rights Commissioner, she resigned after coming under pressure right. following her visit, to your point. And it seems as though because she would not go along with the standard narrative. Yeah. And she was uh, she was formerly the president of Chile. So she has stature and she has um, credibility. But 
from the West point of view, it's not good enough. You know, you mentioned 45 countries, Islamic countries. Well, that's a much much larger number than, than the G7 that supports the U.S. point of view. But, hey, in this case, 7 is a bigger number than 45. I've taken fairly high <laughs> levels of math to get a Ph.D. Yeah. Uh, a lot of years of statistics, I'm going to have to go to the George Koo School of Math to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to solve for X, because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, PLA announces completion of Taiwan Sea in air drills. Eastern Theater Command says joint military tasks were successfully completed. Uh, your thoughts on this? Because the uh, this is in the uh, South China Morning Post. Yeah. The Chinese military has announced that it successfully completed various tasks in its recent drills around Taiwan, but warned it would continue regular combat drills against the island. What does that really mean, George Koo? Well, I think, and as I had pointed out in my uh, earlier piece in Asia Times, because of Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China has break, basically broken their own self-imposed the median line between the, on the Taiwan Straits between mainland and Taiwan. By their military exercises, they're now demonstrating that, uh, from China's point of view, we can go anywhere, anytime, shoot at any target we want, all around Taiwan, not just between the straits. We are now on the other side of Taiwan as well, and we have now taken, we have gotten the moral high ground because of the provocation by Pelosi to do that at any time we want. And um, already we hear that um, from Kirby, the uh, spokesman for DOD, that um, USS Reagan that hightailed out of that during the live, live drill and went head north towards Japan is vowing to come back and test the PLA resolve. And boy, that's going to be something bear watching. But I can tell you what the people of Taiwan are now saying. The people in Taiwan are saying, we love the status quo. So we're not going to sear the pot and go and do anything that approaches declaring independence because we now know for sure that not only where the red line is, but also how uh, China will respond. And they will, that when they say they're going to do something, they do. So the best, shit, best thing is not to stir the pot and keep it at the status quo. But in the event, that there's going to be a firefight, we're not going to fight. We're just going to sit down and give up and, and negotiate because there's no point in, in throwing ourselves at a fight that we're going to lose and get our people killed. And that's, that's the sentiment from Taiwan right now, outside of the DPP, of course. During the drills, the PLA fired 11 Donfang series missiles over the island. I don't know what those are, but if you do, please let me know. And flew drones over Kuemoy, a Taiwan-controlled island close to the mainland. Yeah. These Donfang series missiles, 
Was that a large enough message? Because I read that leading into U.S. downplays tensions with China amid fears of military escalation. Following Speaker Pelosi's trip, Washington and Taipei are taking drastically different tacks toward China's retaliatory military drills. George Ku, your thoughts? Well, I think the, the, the missile is called Dongfang D-17, which is not China's most powerful or advanced missile, but it's one that has a range, uh, uh, I think, up to 1,000 uh, kilometers. So that was plenty far enough to go, to, the, uh, to go over Taiwan and splash on the other side of, um, of, the, uh, of Taiwan and, and and I think what they're demonstrating is that they can hit the USS Reagan if Reagan, if the carrier was you know hanging around on the other side of Taiwan, <laughs> pretending to defend. So I think the eleven missiles have proven their point, and the um, the DPP government was challenged and say, why didn't you sound the air raid warning when these missiles are flying over our head? And they and they said, well, there's no point in alarming our our population. And the the other question is, well, you got a whole battery of Patriot missiles. Why didn't you fire any of those? And the answer was, oh, they're too expensive to waste on a missile that's going over our head. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, in truth, I heard that a lot of the boats in the su- southern tip of Taiwan, they were all hired out because. The local sightseers want to see for themselves what, uh, where these missiles are landing. So apparently there's some people in Taiwan that didn't take this very seriously. And, uh, you know, it's not a political statement. It's a sightseeing uh, opportunity for them. It's a tourist opportunity. Uh, yeah. I'm glad we were able to get you back today because yesterday when we were blessed to have you on, yeah. we were closing the conversation. You were talking about China and China's battery technology, and I'll let you finish. We got about four minutes. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the the, the founder and CEO of this um, company, CATL, and I think it stands for China Emperor Technology Limited or something. Anyway, he has a PhD in condensed matter physics, and apparently, he is the one that's driving the development of batteries for electric uh, vehicles. And he has come to dominate the market in the world, dominate in China, of course, but dominate in the world. And his current technology, one charge will get you over 600 miles, which is far superior than the uh, Tesla battery. But he also have two other breakthrough technologies. Wait a minute, George. Yeah. Not only is that far superior than a Tesla battery, that's superior than any driving range on a full tank of gas in any vehicle in the country. Well, well it depends on the size of the gas tank. Well, how about a 30-gallon tank? <laughs> well, when you find well, the... Anyway. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. You and that, any, you and that anyway, math again. Anyway, go ahead, George. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, he has two other generation breakthrough that is imminently to be introduced and that will just totally dominate the market because no electric vehicles can afford to have second-rate battery technology. They were they were thinking about building a plant in uh, in um, in the U.S. South Carolina and Kentucky were two sites they're looking for. 
Pelosi's trip has caused them to, quote-unquote, delay their decision. Now, how long that delay is going to be and whether China will pull a quid pro quo and say, hey, no batteries for the U.S., um, just to show that technology goes both ways. You know, the U.S. can no longer assume that they're the only ones with leading technologies. And and CATL is just one um, really good example to show that it does go both ways. And this zero-sum game that we are playing is 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 guaranteed to for us to lose and for the world to lose and in some ways for China to lose as well. So it's just not a just not a smart way to go. We have just about a minute and a half left, and I had been reading for a number of years that China was going to be introducing cars into the U.S. market. This was probably 10 or 15 years ago that I was reading about this. Does this technology uh, bring China closer to introducing vehicles into the American market? Absolutely. And and in point of fact, something that we we don't talk about and are not aware of, China has already exceeded Germany and Japan as a leading export of vehicles worldwide. Really? They just haven't been, they have not been shipping here, but they have shipping to Europe uh, and other countries. And, and, and the lead, I should correct myself, the lead is in electric vehicles. You know, they are by far the leader in manufacturing and exporting electric vehicles. And this country is talking about greening and climate change. Well, you know, electric vehicles is one of the major answers to that trend. And, and, and we still only have Tesla and, and hardly anybody else. And we're looking at mm. second-rate technology at this point. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has a really interesting piece entitled, Biden's assassination of al-Qaeda leader was illegal since Zawahiri did not pose a, quote, an immediate international threat, end quote. Marjorie Cohn says he should have been arrested and brought to justice in accordance with the law. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. She's a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Her books include Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. And she's the author of this piece, Professor Marjorie Cohn. As always, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. So you write, President Joe Biden's assassination of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in Afghanistan was illegal, both under U.S. and international law. After the CIA drone strike killed Zawahiri on August 2nd, Biden declared people around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. You say what we should fear instead is the dangerous precedent set by Biden's unlawful extrajudicial execution. Professor Cohn. Yes. Um, 
Biden is certainly scoring political points with this assassination, but it is illegal. Um, It was unnecessary to keep us safe. And the blowback is going to be very devastating um, to the United States. Um, The United Nations released a report in July um, saying that people in the United States had very little to fear from Zawahiri. Um, They concluded al-Qaeda is not viewed as posing an immediate international threat from its safe haven in Afghanistan because it lacks an external operational capacity Uh, capability and does not currently wish to cause the Taliban international difficulty or embarrassment. Well, Biden said now justice has been delivered, and that reminded me of what Barack Obama said after he assassinated Osama bin Laden, justice has been done. Um, Retaliation, however, is illegal and does not constitute justice. These were targeted or political assassinations, um, also known as extrajudicial executions. They're deliberate and unlawful killings that are meted out by order of or with the acquiescence of a government, and they're implemented outside of a judicial framework. And also, um, on the 9th of August, the New York Times carried a piece that documented how Biden actually overstated Zawahiri's role in both the 9-11 attacks and the coal bombings. Um, Biden said that Zawahiri was a mastermind behind the USS coal bombing in 2000 and that he was deeply involved in the planning of the attacks of 9-11. But as this article points out by Carol Rosenberg and Charlie Savage, um, he vastly overstated Zawahiri's involvement. Um, He was a deputy of bin Laden during the 9-11 attacks, um, but in fact, uh, not even clear he was involved in the coal bombing at all. And according to former FBI agent Ali Soufan, who investigated al-Qaeda um, about both of these attacks, he said Zawahiri was not the operational mastermind of either 9-11 or the USS coal bombing, although he did participate in setting the strategic direction uh, of, the, of those attacks. You know, one of the things that came to my mind as I was reading this and you got to the point about justice, former President Obama stated justice has been done when he assassinated bin Laden. It made me think about Libya and the former president of Libya and what the United States did there and uh, that extrajudicial assassination. Your thoughts? Yes. Well, there they if a country is going to attack another country, it has to be acting in self-defense against an imminent threat or um, with the permission of the Security Council. And the Security Council did pass a resolution regarding Libya, but did not authorize regime change. And sure enough, that's what Obama did. Uh, not only engineered regime change in Libya, but created a vacuum which mm-hmm. ISIS then came in and filled so actually made us more vulnerable to terrorism, not less. And uh, in this, I, I just want to mention briefly why this assassination of Zawahiri was illegal. Um, it, these extrajudicial executions are prohibited by a treaty the U.S. has ratified, which makes it part of U.S. law. 
under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. It's called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, and it says no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of, his li- of its life. And the UN Human Rights Committee is the body that oversees this treaty, and it concluded that all human beings are are uh, entitled to the protection of the right to life without distinction of any kind, including people suspected or convicted of even the most serious crimes. <clears throat> now, the 9-11 attacks were not an armed attack by a government against the United States. They were crimes against humanity and should have been punished as such, people brought to justice in accordance with the law. <clears throat> Also, uh, Agnes Calamard, who is a U.N. special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions, um, said that outside the context of active hostilities, and we're certainly not involved in active hostilities, um, the use of drones or other means for targeted killing is almost never likely to be legal. And intentionally lethal or potentially lethal force can only be used where it's strictly necessary to protect against an imminent threat. Um, Also, willful killing is a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions, which is punishable as a war crime. Um, A killing is lawful only when it's necessary to protect life, and no other means is available to protect life. So that's international law, which, as I said, is also part of U.S. law. But in addition, this assassination violated the U.S. War Powers Resolution. Mm -hmm. And there are only three situations when the president can use military force. First, when Congress, Congress declares war. This hasn't happened since World War II. Second, in a national emergency <clears throat> created by an attack on the United States, its territories, possessions, or armed forces. Well, just Zawahiri being in Afghanistan more than 20 years after the 9-11 attacks did not constitute a national emergency. And third, when there is specific statutory authorization, such as an authorization for the use of military force, or an AUMF. Well, in 2001, Congress adopted an AUMF, and it's been used to justify U.S. military action in 85 different countries, even though it only authorized the president to use military force against people who contributed to the 9-11 attacks in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States. Well, um, Zawahiri did not pose an immediate international threat. He should have been arrested and brought to justice. Um, And Biden claimed no civilians were killed in this uh, Mm -hmm. drone attack on Zawahiri, but hasn't provided any independent evidence to support that claim. And I think we have to be wary of that assertion because this assassination came almost a year after Biden launched an illegal drone strike as he was withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Ten civilians were killed in that attack, and the U.S. Central Command admitted that the strike was a tragic mistake only after an extensive New York Times investigation put a lie to the prior U.S. declaration that it was a righteous strike. And as Biden was withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan, he said he would mount over-the-horizon attacks from outside Afghanistan, even without troops on the ground. So we can expect the Biden administration to conduct future illegal drone strikes that kill civilians. It's hard for me to think that civilians weren't killed in a city 
where you used two Hellfire missiles. That's hard for me to imagine. So in your piece, you've laid out very clearly how this was illegal, but you say that we should fear instead the dangerous precedent set by Biden's unlawful extrajudicial execution. So talk about your fear of the precedent being set. Because to me, he's following along the likes of his predecessors. Yes, yes, he is. And other countries are going to look at this and say, hey, the U.S. did it, we can do it too, and be assassinating maybe even U.S. leaders um, if they say that there is some kind of a threat. And so it's a slippery slope. Um, this 2001 AUMF, which, as I said, has been used as an excuse um, for the U.S military actions in 85 countries, Congress must repeal it and replace it with a new authorization for the use of military force that specifically requires that any use of force comply with U.S. obligations under international law. Now, that's the case whether or not the AUMF says so, but if it says so, there's a greater possibility that the U.S. would actually comply with it. And also, Congress should uh, revisit the War Powers Resolution and explicitly limit the president's authority to use force to that which is necessary to repel a sudden or imminent attack the way it is now. um, The president basically cites the War Powers Resolution, cites the AUMF, does whatever he wants, um, and then goes to Congress to say, this is what we're doing, and uh, the majority of of people in Congress who are beholden to the defense contractors who manufacture these drones and these bombers, they salute and march. Um, And so there needs to be a whole revamping of not just the AUMF, but the War Powers Resolution as well. In terms of saluting and marching, that, that takes me right to my next point, because one of the things I found very interesting is that especially through mainstream media, there was no pushback here. It was just, oh, we got him. Oh, great. Ho-hum. Let's move on. Uh, Zero analysis about whether this was the right thing to do, whether this was the right time to do it. There was no discussion about why it was done at this particular time as we move into the November elections and Joe Biden is underwater. I agree. I agree. There was very little analysis in the, I call it the corporate media, um, Mm -hmm. not the mainstream media. Um, There was some analysis, including uh, my piece and uh, and also your show. Um, But, you know, one thing I think we need to talk about briefly, Wilmer, is um, that why did 9-11 happen? Mm. Um, What was it? Was it because they hated U.S. democracy? Well, if it was, they would have attacked the Statue of Liberty, Mm -hmm. Um, but they didn't. And it had to do with U.S. foreign policy. And right shortly after 9-11, I researched Obama bin Laden's positions to find out why did this happen, because people assumed that he was behind it, and he was. Um, There were three pet peeves that Osama bin Laden had. First of all, the U.S. sanctions, which killed more than a half million Iraqi children. Secondly, Israel's illegal occupation and repression of the Palestinians. And third, the stationing of U.S. military bases in mm-hmm. the two 
holiest sites of Islam, Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. I think that we need to totally reanalyze uh, and analyze in the first place U.S. foreign policy and why are we drawing these terrorist attacks. I'm not justifying them, but we have to understand exactly. why they happened, change our foreign policy if we really want to be safe from terrorism. Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thanks so much, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Sputnik International reports Pentagon admits sending missiles to Ukraine capable of hitting Russian defense systems. According to a media report, it could have been an AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile or a harm. And if true, it could be one of the longest-range missiles that the U.S. has supplied to Ukraine so far. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's the national organizer of Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. It's good to be here. So the defense undersecretary noted that the goal of sending these uh, anti-radar weapons was to allow Ukrainian warplanes to fly without fearing Russian air defenses. Steve, it just seems as though the United States is pouring more and more weaponry into the region, pouring it into a lost cause. Mark Sloboda asked the question earlier in the program if this was now just becoming a test bed for American weapon systems. Your thoughts? Well, I, it, it's definitely where we're getting rid of our last batch of weapon systems. This is coming at a time when the Ukrainian Eastern Front has all but collapsed, they have suffered loss after loss after loss. They're retreating, and as they're retreating and pulling back towards Kiev, pulling back towards Lviv, they're shelling civilian targets. They're, they're, uh, a good friend of mine, Eva Bartlett, who was in a hotel that got, that got targeted and bombed the other day, last week, um, by the Ukrainian military. Uh, and so for the U.S. to be just shoveling more and more and more weapons into the country at this point is just to see how quickly they can either get confiscated by the Russians, sold on the black market so that we have somewhere else to go fight, uh, or blown up so that they can justify handing piles more of taxpayer money to their buddies at Raytheon or Boeing or Lockheed Martin saying, we need new gear now. How do you see... An end to this, because you've got Zelensky on television talking about we're doing well and send us more weapons and all of that kind of stuff. We know that that Russia has a game plan. They're accomplishing what they set out to accomplish. It doesn't seem as though Zelensky is going to be crying uncle anytime soon. So and the United States, again, just sees this as the way to your point of, of dumping weapons in many forms and fashions. So. How do you see this thing coming to an end? Well, it's not going to be pretty for the average Ukrainian citizen. Zelensky's playing uh, a media game here. He knows he's on the way out. He knows he's 
Uh, this is coming, you know, right as they, they tried to put him on the cover of Vogue magazine, rehabilitate his image, you know, for the, the donor set, there were multiple articles coming out in the New York Times uh, and the CBS documentary that got pulled back on. That they had to kind of issue an apology for doing a little accurate reporting. Um, and a number of mainstream publications just having legitimate, albeit way late in the game, criticisms of Zelensky, of the corruption in Ukraine. Uh, so I think he's he's trying to fight a PR battle because they've never put him in charge of a real war. So this is the one that he knows how to play a little bit better. Um, but if this drags on into the winter, the last spot the Ukrainian military needs to be in is stuck in the middle of the winter in a war against Russia where all they have are mass killing machines supplied to them by the U.S., where they don't have a lot of training for them, where they have no support, no backup, no lines of communication. Uh, I'd, I, would, I would rather be at home learning how to speak Russian <laughs> if I was the average Ukrainian uh, than I would be stuck in a field freezing to death standing next to a long-range anti-radar missile. When you expand the discussion further out beyond just Russia and the Ukraine, there's a piece in Common Dreams, Enough is Enough, campaign launched in UK to fight cost of living crisis. Fair pay, affordable bills, enough to eat and a decent place to live. These aren't luxuries. They are your rights. There's a progressive coalition of trade unions, advocacy groups and lawmakers in the UK launched they launched a new campaign this week to push back against the misery forced on millions by raising bills, low wages, food poverty, shoddy housing, and a social and a society run only for a wealthy elite. Steve, we've been talking on this show since a lot of this stuff started about at some point the sanctions regime and all of this other pressure is going to make its way to the grassroots and it's going to manifest itself politically. And it's not going to be pretty when it does. And this uh, Enough is Enough campaign seems to be one of those elements that we've been talking about for months. Oh, uh, absolutely. And there's only, I mean, there's only so much pressure you can apply on the citizenry before something pops loose uh, on any side. And here we have... You know, trade unions that that have come together for this that are really honestly that they're not even they're not even trying to get anything more than what they normally had. This is one of those instances where you see large union groups coming together to not ask for anything additional, but to simply state there are basic conditions of survival that need to be met. And we don't think you should be able to make a ton of money off of our labor until they are. It's, it, we're, we're not even trying to get back to a semblance of normal. We're just trying to get back to a semblance uh, of, you know, out of stasis or into survival rather than scrambling for the opportunity to go pick up sticks for firewood. Um, this is the sanctions regime chickens coming home to roost. And the, the flip side to this is there's a, a UK nationalist movement that's 
rising up right along the side of it that has almost identical demands, but just different political pathways to get to it. So we're seeing a more traditional European fracturing of the populace along with socialist and or nationalist lines. And there's another piece, uh, UK Industries, this is from Sputnik, and households brace for blackouts, gas shortage in January. The UK is planning for several days over the winter when cold weather may combine with gas shortages leading to organized blackouts for industry and even households. And Steve, this is self-inflicted and it's European government's following the United States down a sanctions rabbit hole, which is contributing greatly to inflation and other types of shortages. And now in the UK, they're planning in the winter for gas shortages and blackouts. Don't you love how how incredibly British this is? (laughs) Uh, They're telling you five, six months in advance. Okay, we have done such a bad job at our jobs, and we've done such a bad job with your money that we've decided that in arguably one of the coldest months, that's when we're going to make you most responsible for our mistakes. They're begging people to keep a stiff upper lip. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? You might just want to tighten up there, my son, <laughs> because it's about to get, you know, you tell, look, just tell you what, don't buy food this week, save up, buy a sweater. Okay. And, and then just alternate every other week with your paychecks. You try and store food like a squirrel inside of you. And then also buy sweaters. This is going to end up very, very badly for whatever administration the the UK comes up with post Boris Johnson, um, and it's I mean it's it's them it's Italy it's the Netherlands it's France it, I saw this morning where Japan's entire government resigned today uh, this we're we're seeing um, well what the World Economic Forum described as a, a global great reset uh, but it's just it's have, starting to have real physical consequences. And part of this article, they say that this is the worst case scenario. They go on to say that they don't expect this to be the reality, but that this is what the UK is projecting. And then they say, if the winter is particularly cold, Britain may have to rely increasingly on pipeline shipments of gas from mainland Europe, where supplies are already thin as Moscow curbs flows. Yeah. But that doesn't really explain the basis of the crux of the problem. It's not that Vladimir Putin just woke up and decided, I'm going to turn the gas off. Right. Right. No, there was a series of events conducted by the UK's foreign policy experts and finance ministers that made it so (laughs) the only possible outcome from the sanctions that they drew up, they ordered and and they put into effect would be our people run out of fuel in the winter to heat themselves and to time it as such. And I love the way that they, they describe it as a reasonable 
worst case scenario. <laughs> that's it, it, that's their language, their phrasing. This is a reasonable worst case scenario, as if worst case scenarios or scenarios in general have any sort of reason to them. Or you could come up to your your fuel shortage and and have a chat with it. You talk some sense into it. You know, no, I'm sorry. You need to you need to raise the temperatures seven degrees Celsius. You're being a little bit too unreasonable. We're, we're trying to have a, a happier worst case scenario, and you're not providing. That these are not these are not people who think that the the people they're in charge of of making decisions for are smart, Wilmer. They they think we're all dumb, and I don't think they like us very much. <laughs> Now, on the natural disaster side, uh, low water levels mean Rhine is days from being shut for cargo. Germany's Rhine River, one of Europe's key waterways, is just days away from being closed to commercial traffic because of very low levels caused by drought. Authorities are warning. Crucially, the impending crisis could lead energy companies to cut their output. One of the country's biggest gas companies has said, and we talked about this yesterday, but to me, this is such an amazing story. I felt that I wanted to get another take on it and yours being that take. Uh, businesses located along the Rhine or dependent on it to transport or receive goods are warning that they've been forced to scale back activities. They're now on the verge of having to close some production if cargo ships are no longer able to access the river. So not only do you have the political crisis that's causing problems, as in they're picking these fights with Russia, but now global warming and drought are impacting the ability to transport product, and that could contribute greatly to the supply chain problem. Yeah, and this is this is something that, uh, that has been... I don't know. It's something that we've been able to look at, watch happen, describe, but somehow be utterly unable to correct. And I, I don't know enough about inter international shipping, intercontinental intercontinental shipping, to say whether or not there are more efficient ways to do this or whether or not there are means of conveyance that, that aren't going to necessarily rely on trying to, uh, to shove boats through dry washes. I do know this, though, Wilmer. Uh, the, the most important thing in you know, shipping on a, a river or anything like that isn't necessarily what type of fuel you have, although there are environmentalists that will make that argument. It's having water to float the boat on in the first place. There you go. <laughs> and if you don't have that, you you have uh, the literal definition of gridlock. You've just got dry docked boats and and either rotting or spoiling or running out of sell by daytime goods. Um, this is a real this is a real time crisis that doesn't necessarily require a political solution. It just requires a short term allocation of resources in order to get trucks over there. But all of this stuff is relying on the, the coal and the gas and the yep. oil the environmentalists are trying to get us to stop using. So we're going to have to use the products they don't like to get us out of the environmental crisis that the same people who have the products we don't like caused in the first place. 
Steve Porkin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Daniel Ortega, A New Democratic World is Being Born. Uh, It's a print of an address by President Comandante Daniel Ortega during the celebration of the 43rd anniversary of the Air Force of the Army of Nicaragua. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's a Pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer and a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. As always, Netfa, welcome back. Always a pleasure. So, first of all, just your overall thoughts. I strongly suggest that folks uh, go to Orinoco Tribune and they read this speech because I think it's important for people to read the comments and the thoughts of these various leaders so that they can formulate their own opinions and they don't find themselves being poisoned by the narratives of opposing forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you because, I mean, we're often dis- discouraged in this country. They do such a job of maligning uh, leaders and doing this personality thing that people are not dissuaded from reading the actual words of people, which actually can be very politically educational and also like educational. And like you said, uh, it helps us form our own opinions. And actually we would find that some of these leaders often, especially leaders like Daniel Ortega and Fidel and Hugo Chavez are saying things that we couldn't conceive of the leaders of, you know, the global international finance, you know, capitalist order and neoliberalism saying things that would actually uh, once you hear them, kind of dispel, you know, some of the misinformation that we they were led to believe, not just about the people themselves, but what the what the people centered projects are about in these countries, you know, the movements. And this particular speech, and I don't know, I mean, I, you might recall that I actually was in Nicaragua last month mm-hmm. for the 43rd anniversary. That was not this particular one. This was this one you're speaking of. He was addressing the anniversary of the armed forces. Mm-hmm. And so we were in the country during the mid-July or toward the end of July, I guess, 19th, was addressing the whole country, the Sandinista Revolution in general. And both of the speeches are very, they're interesting. Um, I think what he's, uh, he's talking about the, the rise of, you know, the, the rise of people-centered movements, the rise of the left, and the challenge of that uh, the imperialism is facing and its waning influence around the world. And also the unique, uh, the unique position, and and let's say the goals or the reason for being or the purpose of the armed forces of left of governments coming into power that need that are a pushback against exploitation and money doctrine and and imperialism, and then also 
projects like ALBA, because he refers to ALBA in there. People um, should know that ALBA is referring to the Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas. I think that's exactly how it's, I'm not sure if I'm getting the exact translation right, but it was a project, a regional project of leftist governments that emerged out of the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela and that had more, it was, it was economic um, challenge to the World Bank and IMF and all that, and just a challenge to neoliberalism in general. And it did different things in countries, in various countries in the region, in uh, Latin America, or, or should I say that Latin America and the Caribbean, like, for example, no interest loans for projects that were that were centered around helping regular people, working class people, pro- you know, people that, uh, projects around self-sustenance. Um, self, you know, and self-determination, those kind of things. Uh, they were as opposed to strapping people with big loans and creating projects that only extracted the wealth and exploited the people um, and exploited the land. They were supporting projects of the opposite. So it helped the region get on a different footing. And now, and it was also why we saw an emergence of different leftist governments during that time, uh, like Lula, you know, the first time he was in office, and different, uh, you know, different places in the in the uh, Honduras, uh, Manuel Zelaya, and all that, and that the U.S. and Western imperialism in general had to be on an assault. Was uh, uh, also Evo Morales in, in Bolivia. They had to push back on that, and so we saw at first a little bit of a a. Not a, I won't call it a retreat because they didn't retreat. They uh, overthrew. They made sure they overthrew these governments, like in Bolivia, like in and Honduras in particular. But now we're seeing a reemergence of what is being often referred to as the pink tide. It was called the pink tide then, and that you know I don't know the pink tide. I think there's a bit of good solid left integrity to a lot of these things that I think is is. Uh, is not expressed or not depicted in what we call it the pink tide. And I think red and or more solidly socialist, revolutionary socialism is positive to me. That's a positive thing. I don't know how people think of it. But then you have, you know, countries like Chile and Mexico that are not solidly, uh, they're not socialist or even solidly socialist, but are still progressive and still uh, demonstrate a left tide happening. And so what Daniel Ortega was talking about him, he has a, a way of real because he's this is an older person mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. been in the movement and experienced stuff, so he has a way of laying out historical you know references that a lot of us don't think of, not just because he's older but because he was involved mm-hmm. <laughs> he was in in the struggle so well, it's interesting because he he talks about integration. And he calls for integration in Central America and the Caribbean, along with Latin American and Caribbean states. He talks about Hugo Chavez and Fidel. And he talks about the empire, basically the United States trying to destroy Alba. And he says, and we can never forget that in 2006, when there was a third neoliberal government ruling our country under the tutelage of the U.S., Illiteracy, poverty, hunger multiplied. Education and health had been privatized, and the works that we had been developing through the revolution had been abandoned. So he's showing and drawing some very clear lines of demarcation between the neoliberal project and the Bolivarian project. And he's asking people to make a very simple calculation. Were you better then, or do you think you're going to be better off now? That's right. I mean, and, and I think people, we need to 
do that. Uh, when I say we, just people in general, not even any kind of national, it was uh, not any kind of country designation or anything. But people in general, we need to make that kind of comparison. Look at the stats. Mm-hmm. I guess not even just stats, but look at the yeah the the, the results in general. However, you want to examine them and have a real honest and and, uh, and you know detailed look at it, and you can see that imperialism is anti-people, neoliberalism is anti-people, and it's unsustainable. It it can't even given left to its own uh, devices, it would collapse even without the resistance movement. But in, in general, it also will breed resistance because people don't want to be exploited. And if you look at Nicaragua in particular, because it's interesting how he raises that, but then Nicaragua after uh, 2006, when the Sandinistas regained power, and you can see it in the other countries too, that they were able to embark. And of course, nothing's perfect and it has challenges, particularly with imperialism trying to undermine it every turn. They have been able to Turn illiteracy around has been designated by the world uh, by uh, UN bodies as having eradicated illiteracy. They've been able to engage on project people-centered economic projects that help working-class folks, cooperatives, all kind of things where the people aren't exploited by the rich. Um, they've revisited they've, even the autonomous regions on the Caribbean coast, or, or you have uh, roads and all kind of infrastructural stuff that imp, uh, that that uh, benefits the regular people and universal health care, universal education, bringing all that stuff back before they were trying to embark on it before the 1996, when they, when they reversed, when the U S government, they reversed it before they were trying to, but they didn't have a lot of time. And as we all know, in the case with Nicaragua, they had to fight a U.S. backed contra war mm-hmm. in the midst of all of that. So, but anyway, I mean, we don't want to. It's not just about Nicaragua because I think Daniel Ortega does um, a good job of broadening the purview and making us look at the fact that really neoliberalism is the existential threat mm-hmm. to not just the reason but the world, and that it takes that kind of integration and cooperation on the international level for the people to uh, to benefit and flourish. I always encourage people when they are either listening to conversations like this or they're talking that they look at a map because it's important to understand where Nicaragua fits in terms of Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica, and, of course, the discussion about a canal going through Nicaragua. I think China wants to build a canal through the country. Uh, Really quickly, there was another piece in Orinoco Tribune, Latin America's fourth left wave since the Cuban Revolution is social democratic. And it talking about Colombia has now a new president, Gustavo Petro and uh, Francia Marquez as the vice president. And that there's this whole left movement. Basically, this is supporting what Ortega was talking about in his speech. Yes, it is. Uh, it's interesting, though, we call social democrat wave is it can be good. I think we should see it as victories for the left in general, even if for those of us who, like myself, who believe that something more uh, decidedly leftist and radical is in, is needed. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what can we help? You know, we uh, in terms of anything like that would be so attacked as always by imperialism. But I think it's a welcome. It's great, and also the with and, and the. In the situation with Gustavo uh, Petro, there is a quite solidly <laughs> vice president in Francia Marquez, um, and also she's African, and she's a woman, and her politics are quite, you know, radical. And I think she sees through all of this stuff. 
Um, and, and so I think that's also a very positive thing. Uh, we have the, you know, Chile and Mexico and all that. Those, these are positive developments, and I think they give, open up a space for people-centered movements to kind of step in. And I think this is important in terms of the states can only do but so much. But when they have the backing of the people and the people have projects on the ground that are going on, cooperatives and, and are involved in the process, participatory democracy is going on, then it doesn't matter who you have in power. Because then the people, the, those who are in power, I mean, what the position people you have, you have in positions, then those p- p- positions are have to be more accountable to the people. And in this piece, uh, they talk about the current election victories have taken place in conditions far more uncertain than in the decade of the 2000s. On the one hand, U.S. imperialism is seen to be much more fragile than it was 20 years ago. With the feebleness of the U.S. economy, the desperate attempt to weaken China and Russia by the U.S., and a rising mood around the world that no longer seeks to follow Washington's dictation. I continue to ask this question when we talk about the region, and that is... What's next? Because we know that U.S. imperial hegemons don't go quietly into that long, dark night. Right. Well, I, uh, I can't help it, actually. Guys. I, know, I know we want to say with the region, but I can't help but connect internationally because we have them there mm-hmm. in Africa actually trying to show we got and, and getting not a great reception. I mean, got scolded by uh, uh, this is the name that's in South Africa, calling him out on the, you know spreading you know the violence and and extremism on the continent. But in Latin America, I guess what we um, it, it's they're busy trying to hold on to what they can. I think that's maybe opened up some space for Latin America. Uh, but at the same time, you said they're not going to go quietly. I think it's time for us, uh, those of us, the mass of the people who. who you know, want to need to organize and protect, defend our gains and look to figure out how do we have more. I think we know they're going to become increasingly fat. They they can't. They don't have any opportunity, any other option but to become increasingly militaristic and fascist and even cunning in the, the uh, co- covert operations that they that they do. But we have to be able to expect it and, and, and be fortified, you know, be uh, stalwart. Netfa Freeman, as always, thank you so much for that time, so much for that analysis. And as always, man, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. And I hope you were informed and enlightened. And I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. (laughs) 